Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry sound bites. Hi, I'm John Sheldon, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer reviewed research and reviews from our May 2011 issue. Let's get started. The May issue brings two articles from JCP's ongoing series celebrating the 50th anniversary of NCDU. In one of these offerings, Gary Sachs and colleagues review treatment options for bipolar disorder. First, they describe the model of collaborative care that was formulated for the large STEP-BD study. In this model, clinicians formulate a personalized menu of choices based on two considerations. First, the best available evidence pertaining to the decision point at hand, and second, the clinician's knowledge of the patient as an individual. Next, the authors review the current evidence on treatment options. They conducted a medline search for double-blind, placebo-controlled clinical trials with samples of at least 100 subjects, which they referred to as Category A studies. Regarding mania, they found evidence for efficacy of eight dopamine-blocking agents, olanzapine, zaprazidone, risperidone, haloperidol, quetiapine, aripiprazole, paliperidone, and acenapine. The study suggests that these drugs have the same amount of benefit over placebo, whether they are given as monotherapy or as adjuncts to lithium or valproate. However, the evidence does not support a class effect for anticonvulsants such as gabapentin and lamotrigine. Regarding depression, Category A evidence clearly supports the two FDA-approved treatments, quetiapine and the combination of olanzapine and fluoxetine. However, the evidence does not encourage use of standard antidepressants in bipolar depression, despite the fact that they are still the initial treatment for 50% of newly diagnosed bipolar patients in the United States. Finally, the authors emphasize that the goal of bipolar research moving forward will be to translate population-based data into personalized treatment. Another piece honoring the anniversary of NCDU comes to us from Christoph Corell and colleagues, who contribute a useful review of current evidence and future directions in pediatric psychopharmacology. There has been much debate about the potential overdiagnosis of disorders in children, particularly bipolar disorder, as well as allegations of overmedicating. This debate is fueled by decades of prescribing, despite a lack of efficacy and safety data, in pediatric populations. The lack of data has been addressed within the last decade, and so the authors endeavor to summarize the existing high-quality evidence for the three major drug classes used in youth, stimulants, antidepressants, and antipsychotics. Data show a greater or at least different susceptibility to side effects in youth compared to adults. Carell and colleagues discussed the major antidepressant studies with regard to suicidality, which has been the focus in the wake of the 2004 FDA findings. 
They note that the risk has been confined to trials in major depressive disorder in that no suicidal events occurred in the large anxiety trials. Effect sizes for all three drug classes have generally been moderate, and most of the numbers needed to treat have been well below 10, which would indicate clinical significance. The strongest evidence exists for the use of stimulants and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Results support antidepressant treatment of anxiety disorders, including obsessive-compulsive disorder and social phobia, as well as major depressive disorder. Antipsychotic prescribing has recently increased substantially in youth, accompanied by concerns about the validity of childhood psychiatric diagnoses and a lack of attempts at psychosocial interventions. However, the database has also increased for the use of antipsychotics in youth with schizophrenia, mania, and autism, and evidence of efficacy has been found. Next, we have two articles about bipolar disorder, which affects approximately one in eight-tenths million adults and is a recurrent illness marked by episodes of mood disturbance and recovery. Traditionally, studies have equated recovery with syndromal recovery, that is, the resolution of affective syndromes, while largely ignoring functional recovery or how the patient functions in various role domains in life. Functional recovery is defined as the restoration of normal role function at work, at home, or both. The authors of the first article examined whether the presence of subsyndromal depressive symptoms predicted functional recovery after an acute manic episode. To do so, they compared 52 subjects with DSM-4 bipolar 1 disorder who at the time of symptomatic recovery from an acute manic or hypomanic episode had a concomitant functional recovery on demographic variables and mood symptoms with 33 subjects who had symptomatically recovered but had not functionally recovered. Demographic and mood variables were examined in the non-functionally recovered group to assess the predictors of time to functional recovery. The primary functional outcome measure used was the Life Functioning Questionnaire, a five-minute gender-neutral self-report scale to measure role function in four domains, at the workplace, duties at home, leisure time with family, and leisure time with friends. Participants in the study were recruited from July 2000 through February 2005. These researchers found that depressive symptoms, even at the subsyndromal level, were significantly associated with persisting functional impairment after symptomatic recovery from manic episode. Subsyndromal depressive symptoms also significantly predicted a slower time to functional recovery over the next nine months. The authors concluded that the presence of even mild subsyndromal depressive symptoms may interfere with functional recovery in patients with bipolar disorder after symptomatic recovery from manic or hypomanic episode. The authors of our second article on bipolar disorder 
report on findings from a 10-year study they conducted on long-term outcomes of bipolar patients with mixed episodes. New information on mixed episodes is needed because current research provides little quality information in this area. Also, mixed episodes in patients are difficult to treat and are responsible for increasing the illness severity and producing a worse prognosis than in patients without mixed episodes. To learn more about this subject, the authors compared the long-term outcomes of bipolar patients who had at least one mixed episode with the long-term outcomes of patients who experienced non-mixed episodes. The study involved a naturalistic sample of 120 patients who were followed prospectively for up to 10 years. Outcomes that were of particular interest to the authors were number and severity of episodes, hospitalizations, and suicide attempts, all of which were recorded at bi-monthly visits. At the study's end, the authors found that nearly 40% of patients had mixed episodes and that these mixed episode patients had a younger mean age at onset compared with the non-mixed group. After adjusting for age at onset, they found that mixed episode patients had an increased risk of hospitalization compared to the non-mixed group. Other differences between mixed episode and non-mixed episode patients, such as alcohol abuse, psychotic symptoms, and suicidality, were partially mediated by age at onset and were not significantly different after the authors controlled for age at onset. The authors conclude, although some factors associated with mixed episodes are mediated by a younger age at onset, the long-term prognosis of mixed episode patients is worse than that of patients with non-mixed episodes. This month, the journal has one offering related to the treatment of obsessive-compulsive disorder. Although SSRIs are the first-line treatments for obsessive-compulsive disorder, about 40 to 60 percent of patients do not tolerate or respond to these drugs. We highlight a study by Heather Berlin and colleagues that investigated topiramate as an augmentation therapy in patients already taking SSRIs. 36 patients with obsessive-compulsive disorder received either topiramate or placebo for 12 weeks. The primary outcome measures were the changes in the Yale-Brown obsessive-compulsive scale total score and the compulsions and obsessions subscores. The topiramate augmentation group showed a decrease of five points on the compulsion subscale compared to a decrease of less than one point in the placebo group. However, topiramate did not seem to have a beneficial effect on obsessions. Also, topiramate was not well tolerated in this study. Five of the 18 topiramate patients discontinued the drug due to adverse effects. The authors conclude that this trial shows promise for topiramate in the treatment of compulsions, but that further studies are needed given the study's modest sample size and duration. Next, we have a new report from the NISARC survey on binge drinking and Axis I psychiatric disorders in community-dwelling middle-aged and older adults. Recent U.S. and international studies have demonstrated an increase in the prevalence of alcohol use 
among older adults over the past few decades, suggesting that alcohol disorders are a growing public health concern in later life. One indicator of problematic alcohol use that has adverse health consequences is binge drinking, which refers to the consumption of more than three drinks per occasion in older adults. The authors set out to document the sociodemographic correlates of binge drinking in middle-aged and older adults and to test the association of binge drinking with the occurrence of dsm 4 mood, anxiety, and alcohol use disorders, smoking, and the use of illicit drugs independently of sociodemographic variables and lifetime diagnosis of the disorder in question. A secondary data analysis based on a subsample of the NISARC revealed that almost 16% of men and almost 6% of women aged 50 years and older reported binge drinking in the year prior to baseline assessment. In men, both occasional binge drinkers and frequent binge drinkers were significantly more likely than current male drinkers without binge drinking to report alcohol abuse disorder and alcohol dependence disorder. In women, both occasional binge drinkers and frequent binge drinkers were significantly more likely than current female drinkers without binge drinking to report alcohol abuse disorder and alcohol dependence disorder. Occasional binge drinking in women was also associated with an increased risk of panic disorder without agoraphobia and post-traumatic stress disorder. These results provide valuable information on the risks associated with binge drinking and suggest targets for prevention strategies to benefit mental health in middle and old age. The next study highlights the use of ginkgo biloba for the treatment of tardive dyskinesia in schizophrenia. Although the prevalence of tardive dyskinesia is lower with the use of atypical antipsychotics, the risk of tardive dyskinesia remains with neuroleptic treatment, especially in susceptible populations. A research group from China investigated ginkgo biloba as a treatment for tardive dyskinesia in a group of inpatients with schizophrenia in a China Veterans Affairs hospital. Ginkgo biloba extract, or placebo in capsule form, was given to 157 patients for 12 weeks. The change on the abnormal involuntary movement scale served as the primary outcome measure. The mean score at endpoint was significantly lower in the ginkgo biloba group than in the placebo group. Response was defined as a reduction in score of at least 30%. 40 patients in the ginkgo biloba group and 4 in the placebo group achieved response. The study also found a greater effect of ginkgo biloba in patients who had worse symptoms. No changes were seen in cognitive function or schizophrenic symptoms. Ginkgo biloba's effect on tardive dyskinesia is hypothesized to result from its antioxidant properties as a free radical scavenger. Next we look at emotion dysregulation, which is a deficit in the ability to regulate intense and shifting emotions. 
A growing body of research is focused on the development of and the correlates of emotion dysregulation, and current models of psychopathology have incorporated the construct of emotion dysregulation, thereby suggesting its contribution to symptomatic distress. The aim of D5 and colleagues was to assess the construct and incremental validity of self-reported emotion dysregulation over and above any childhood trauma and negative affect in predicting a range of psychopathology. 530 individuals aged 18 to 77 years, a majority of them female, were recruited from the waiting areas of several clinics in an urban public hospital. Participants completed a battery of self-reported measures obtained by interview, including the Childhood Trauma Questionnaire, the Positive and Negative Affect Schedule, and the Emotion Dysregulation Scale. Regression analyses examined the unique and incremental associations of these measurements of childhood traumatic experiences, negative affect, and emotion dysregulation with concurrent structured interview-based measurements of psychiatric distress and history of self-destructive behaviors. Emotion dysregulation added statistically significant incremental validity to each of the study's regression models. Results of this study support the conceptualization of emotion dysregulation as a distinct and clinically meaningful construct associated with psychiatric distress that is not reducible to negative affect. Emotion dysregulation is a key component in a range of psychiatric symptoms and disorders and is a core target for psychopharmacologic and psychosocial treatment interventions. Now we move to a heart-wrenching subject, a filicide, which is death by homicide of a child at the hand of a parent. Although filicide is a rare tragedy, a parent's mental disorders are often involved in such cases. The authors compared homicide rates between children whose parents had previous psychiatric hospital admission and children in the general population, exploring the effect of individual parental diagnoses and examining how frequently the crime was committed by parents with versus without previous psychiatric hospitalization. This prospective register-based cohort study incorporated data from the entire Danish population born from 1973 until the start of 2007. Using the large Danish national population registers, the authors studied the risks of homicide for children or parents admitted to a psychiatric hospital as well as the specific parental diagnoses compared to children whose parents had no such admissions. These findings were linked to data from police records to determine whether a parent was a perpetrator. The authors found a higher risk of homicide among children whose parents had previous psychiatric hospitalization. Young children of mothers previously admitted with either schizophrenia-like or affective disorders had the highest homicide rates. The absolute homicide risk was just under 1 per 10,000 when neither parent had a previous psychiatric hospitalization and about 5 per 10,000 when a parent had previously been hospitalized. 88% of child homicide cases were filicide during the years 2000 to 2005. 
The percentage did not differ significantly according to whether or not parents had a previous psychiatric admission. Overall, children of parents with previous psychiatric hospitalizations had higher homicide rates than those whose parents had no such history, although the rate of filicide in particular did not differ significantly between the two groups. Child homicide is extremely rare, however, and almost all children of parents with a previous psychiatric history do not become victims of homicide. Of special note, this month the journal also has an accompanying commentary by Susan Friedman and Philip Resnick related to this article and filicide. The next offering looks at whether personality disorder experts can recognize DSM-IV personality disorders from five-factor model descriptions of patients' cases. Dimensional models of personality are currently under consideration for integration into the next revision of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. The authors of this article examine the clinical utility of the five-factor model, the most studied trait-based dimensional system for the diagnosis of personality disorders. The authors tested 73 clinical researchers who had specialized experience and knowledge about personality disorders, shown by the fact that each had published a minimum of three articles on personality disorders. This sample of researchers provided diagnoses for case profiles in DSM-IV format and five-factor model format, and then rated the DSM-IV and the five-factor model on six aspects of clinical utility. Overall, the expert researcher participants had difficulty identifying correct diagnoses from five-factor model profiles. This finding held true even for a subset of participants who had equal familiarity with the DSM-IV and the five-factor model. Participants rated the five-factor model as less clinically useful than DSM-IV for making prognoses devising treatment plans, and communicating with professionals, but the five-factor model was more useful for communicating with patients. These results suggest that personality disorder expertise and familiarity with the five-factor model are insufficient to correctly diagnose personality disorders using five-factor model profiles. The authors state that this insufficiency may prove unlikely to lessen with increased clinical familiarity with the five-factor model because of the inherent ambiguity in the five-factor model profile descriptors. These findings should serve as a springboard to a detailed discussion of diagnostic systems and future research needs. The lead article in our May journal examines suicide risks associated with the use of antidepressants. The authors of this piece were drawn to question recent decisions by the Food and Drug Administration. In 2007, the FDA revised its black box warning for all antidepressants. In this revision, they extended the coverage of the 2004 version that warned of increased risk of suicidal behavior in children and adolescents. The 2007 warning extends coverage to include patients under 25 years of age. 
Additionally, the 2007 warning advises that patients of all ages who were started on antidepressant therapy should be monitored appropriately and observed closely for clinical worsening, suicidality, or unusual changes in behavior. The authors of this article point to limitations in the studies on which the FDA based its 2007 black box revision. They, therefore, conducted a longitudinal observational study of mood disorders with prospective assessments for up to 27 years. Over 750 participants enrolled in the study from 1979 to 1981 while they were experiencing an episode of mania, depression, or schizoaffective disorder. During the course of follow-up, the participants had over 6,700 time periods in which they were either exposed or not exposed to an antidepressant. Statistical analysis was used to measure the risk of suicide attempt or suicide in these participants. The results showed that the risk of suicide attempt or suicide was reduced by 20% among participants taking antidepressants. However, since the risk was reduced, not eliminated, the authors conclude that clinicians must monitor patients for suicidal behavior when use of an antidepressant is initiated. The next study on suicide looks at a very specific group, veterans with depression who died by suicide, and examines the timing of their care and the quality of their care at their last visit to a VHA facility. From April 1999 through September 2004, over 1,800 VHA patients with diagnosed dsm 4 depressive disorder died by suicide. The authors looked at service data and pharmacy data to find how recent had been the last VHA visit prior to death and whether the visit involved receipt of mental health services. The authors discovered that just over half of the patients with depression diagnoses had a VHA visit within 30 days of suicide. Although 64% of these patients had received mental health services within 91 days of their suicide, only 51% of patients with depression diagnoses had a VHA visit within 30 days of their suicide. 43% of these patients died by suicide within 30 days of a final visit with mental health services. Among the other 57% of patients who died by suicide within 30 days but were seen in non-mental health settings for their final visit, only 34% had a mental health condition coded at the final visit, and only 41% were receiving adequate dosages of antidepressant, in contrast to 55% of those last seen by mental health services. The authors concluded that increased referrals to mental health services, attention to mental health issues in non-mental health settings, and focus on antidepressant treatment adequacy by all providers might have reduced suicide risk for these patients. We turn next to a different topic than usual, demoralization, specifically the psychological characterization of demoralization in the setting of heart transplant. Demoralization is defined informally as a specific syndrome resulting from the convergence of distress and a subjective sense of incompetence. 
It is prevalent among those who suffer with threatening or disabling medical disorders. Recently, demoralization was formally defined in the Diagnostic Criteria for Psychosomatic Research, or DCPR. These criteria, however, need to be confirmed by empirical research. Moreover, the relationship between demoralization and major depressive disorder needs to be better understood. These two conditions share some characteristics, but have been shown to be distinct. To these ends, the authors studied the psychological features of demoralization in 95 cardiac transplant patients, examining in particular psychological well-being, quality of life, and psychological distress, as well as the effect that demographic characteristics might have on demoralization. The authors also explored whether the presence of major depressive disorder affected these psychological features in demoralized patients. The presence of major depressive disorder was determined via the structured clinical interview for dsm 4 The patients also completed a battery of questionnaires focusing on wellness and quality of life. DCPR-defined demoralization was found in about one-third of the patients and major depressive disorder in about one-fourth. Almost two-thirds of the depressed patients were also demoralized, whereas only about one-fourth of demoralized patients were also depressed. About 10% of patients were both depressed and demoralized. Demoralization with or without major depression was indeed associated with impaired psychological well-being, especially self-acceptance and self-mastery, and with impaired physical, psychological, social, and environmental quality of life. Demoralization was also related to greater psychological distress and was found more often in female and single patients. Decreases in autonomy, Positive relations and self-acceptance occurred when demoralization was added to major depressive disorder. Overall, the study confirms the distinct features of DCPR-defined demoralization noted in earlier phenomenological observations. Next, we turn to three articles, all dealing with some aspects of depression. In the first of these, the authors raise the possibility of a chronic subtype of depression they label as metabolic depression. Cross-sectional studies have previously found an association between metabolic syndrome and depression, and the authors undertook to explore whether this association holds over the course of time. They present a secondary analysis of data over a three-year period and six-year period from an Italian study among older persons with the aim of exploring whether metabolic syndrome or any of its components can predict the onset and chronicity of depression. Metabolic syndrome was defined according to the National Cholesterol Education Program, ATP3 guidelines, and depressive symptoms were assessed using the Centers for Epidemiologic Studies depression scale. Demographic and clinical characteristics were compared between persons with and without baseline depression. Logistic regression analyses were conducted to test whether the presence of metabolic syndrome at baseline could predict onset and chronicity of depression at follow-up after three and six years. The main findings were that waist circumference, 
but not metabolic syndrome, predicted onset of depression, and that depressed individuals with metabolic syndrome were almost three times more likely to have chronic depression, with almost every metabolic syndrome component contributing to the association. The author suggested these findings may indicate a chronic subtype of depression that could be labeled metabolic depression and that investigation is needed to show whether treatment of metabolic disturbances could improve depression prognosis. Our next study on depression would be of particular interest to employers and employees as it relates to the number of work hours, sleep sufficiency, and prevalence of depression among full-time employees. Depression contributes to impairment and reduced productivity in the workplace for a large number of individuals, and depression due to long work hours and sleep deprivation is a major occupational health concern. The authors investigated the extent to which work hours and sleep are associated with depression in full-time employees of nearly 300 small and medium businesses in two Japanese cities. Some 2,600 employees were surveyed using a self-administered questionnaire pertaining to work hours, sleep status, and covariance including sociodemographic factors, health factors, and occupational factors. Depression was assessed with the Center for Epidemiologic Studies Depression Scale. Prevalence of depression by work hours, sleep status, and covariates was analyzed, and risk of depression by work hours, sleep status, and both combined was estimated by regression analysis. Participants in all work hour categories who reported insufficient sleep showed a greater increase in prevalence of depression than those working six to eight hours per day and reporting sufficient sleep. No significant effects on depression were found for participants in any work hour category who reported either six or more hours of sleep or subjective sleep sufficiency. Depression associated with long work hours is primarily a result of sleep deprivation. Greater attention should be paid to management of sleep deprivation in employees to prevent workplace depression. Now we present our final article on depression and the last regular article of this podcast. It is known that most patients with major depressive disorder require second-step treatments to achieve remission. Pharmacologic augmentation agents have improved depression outcomes, but none has proven to be universally effective, and they are associated with side effects and inconvenience. Results of studies using psychotherapy as an augmentation strategy are variable, and therapy can be difficult to implement. Thus, Dr. Trevetti and his colleagues report on their study of exercise as a plausible non-pharmacologic augmentation treatment due to its demonstrated efficacy as a monotherapy, as well as in combination with other depression treatments. The Treatment with Exercise Augmentation for Depression, or TREAD study, was designed by this group to test the efficacy of aerobic exercise as an augmentation treatment for patients with major depressive disorder who had not remitted with antidepressant treatment. 
The participants in this randomized controlled trial were sedentary men and women aged 18 to 70 years with dsm 4 non-psychotic major depressive disorder who had not remitted with SSRI treatment. 126 individuals were randomized to either a lower dose or higher dose of exercise expenditure for 12 weeks while SSRI treatment was held constant. Exercise sessions at the study site were supervised, with home-based sessions added as needed to fulfill the weekly exercise prescription. The primary outcome was remission. There were significant improvements over time for both groups combined without a differential group effect. There was a trend for higher remission rates in the higher-dose exercise group with a clinically meaningful number needed to treat of 7.8 in favor of the high-exercise dose. Significant differences between groups were found when the moderating effects of gender and family history of mental illness were taken into account. These differences suggest that a higher dose of exercise may be better for all men, regardless of family history of mental illness, and for women without a family history of mental illness. Finally, in addition to the commentary previously mentioned on filicide, I wish to point out that we have two other valuable commentaries this month one by Dr. Leon on two clinical trial designs to examine personalized treatment for psychiatric disorders, and the other, a commentary on opioid prescribing practices, in which the authors draw our attention to a problem of epidemic proportions. The authors point out that the volume of prescribed opioid analgesics in the United States increased sevenfold from 1997 to 2007, and this increase paralleled a dramatic rise in deaths from unintended overdoses of analgesic opioids. In some states, more people die in this manner than from both suicide and car crashes. The authors trace the increase to three factors. Increased accessibility of these drugs, the lack of stigma that is attached to illicit drugs, and the reduction in cost of pharmaceuticals to the consumer since 1990. The authors go on to list several ways for clinicians to combat the problem, such as trying non-scheduled drugs and non-pharmaceutical management before moving on to an opioid, screening for substance abuse and mental health problems before prescribing, and keeping track of the patient's record in the state prescription drug monitoring program. If problems do arise with a patient who is taking opioids, the authors advise physicians to avoid dropping the patient. They note that patients who are getting controlled substances from multiple doctors or who are using them along with illicit drugs could be tapered to lower doses and connected to substance abuse treatment professionals. They state that consultation with a pain management specialist may be in order if the dosages increase significantly with no improvement in function. That's all for the May articles and commentaries, but as always, there is much, much more in the May issue. Please visit our website, psychiatrist.com, to find 
a free online CME activity of two of the articles we've covered here, as well as other interactive activities from our CME Institute. And there are a number of book reviews and letters to the editor on a variety of fascinating topics in clinical psychiatry. Join us online for all these pieces and more from the May issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.